Job, please. And let's talk about Jesus from the book of Job. Job chapter 18 and 19. If you haven't been with us, we are in a series on Job. And we're going to try to cover a couple chapters this morning, a couple more this evening. If you don't have the notes from the bulletin, the ushers have some in hand. They'll walk by, just raise your hand, and they'll hand that to you. In Job chapter 18 19, it's an amazing section. And it talks about Christ. Let's back up. Let's set our setting. 1941, there was concentration camps throughout Europe that were handling a number of prisoners, especially the Poles, Jews. And there was one of those prison camps that was located near a river by the border of Poland and, and Germany. And a number of prisoners had been put there. One day, these prisoners who felt like their lives were constantly in jeopardy, and yet they were trying to push on and push on and push on. The men were all told, and some of the ladies, that we need you to just break up these rocks in this quarry area, and we want you to haul them across the camp over to the edge of this river area. And so for the next weeks, the next months, there was this tortuous labor as these slave laborers moved all those rocks, carried a lot of them by hand, some by carts, and got them there. Many people died. Many weren't fed. There was a lot of tragedy and suffering. But there was a sense in the camp from those who survived that said at the end of that project that they felt like there was something to be proud of, that they had accomplished something, that they had achieved something that looked almost impossible. They didn't know what the Germans had in mind, if they were going to build some wharf, some type of dock, some type of defense, or a building now upon all of the rock that they had laid as foundation. But there was a, almost a sense of satisfaction that something that they have done is counting. And then all of a sudden, about three or four days later, the commandant got up, called them all, and said, now we want you to move the rocks back. And so for the next weeks, they moved the rocks back. And when it was all done, they were told, now we want you to move the rocks over there again. As a result of that going back and forth, all of a sudden in those camp records, the death count started to rise drastically. People started failing. The death rate increased just incrementally with the idea that the hardships meant absolutely nothing. That it was just a waste. It happens even in areas like what up this main town. There was a valley that this town had been developed for generations. The picturesque American town. Then they were told that the government has decided that that whole valley is going to now be put underwater and they're going to build a dam there and use it for hydroelectricity. And so those people were told that it's going to take several years. It took something like a dozen to 15 years to build the dam itself and to get that all ready before they would flood the valley. But you can live here still up until that time. They noticed that immediately, immediately after the people were informed that their homes were going to be underwater within a dozen or so years, immediately after they were told that their lands are just basically being overtaken by government rights, that the people's homes all of, a started, all of a sudden started to look different. Lawns were no longer manicured. Flower beds weren't being planted. Gardens weren't being taken care of. The houses that needed to be painted, nobody painted. Roofs went into disrepair. One of the residents commented to the newspapers afterwards when they asked, how come your town fell apart before it was even flooded? They made this comment. Where there is no hope of a future, there is no need to work in the present. That's true. That's true. When you take away people's hope and all they see is dismal, then it's just defeat. That is exactly where we are in Job chapter 18 and 19. In Job chapter 18 19, Job is suffering. And read, listen to the words he speaks in chapter 19. Then Job answered and said, 
How long will you vex my soul and break me in pieces with words? These ten times have you reproached me. He's talking to his friends that are standing there. You are not ashamed that you had made yourselves strange to me. And be it indeed that I have erred. Mine error remains, remains with me myself. If indeed you will magnify yourselves against me and plead against me my reproach, know now that God hath overthrown me and hath compassed me with his net. Behold, I cry out of wrong, but I am not heard. I cry aloud, but there is no judgment. He hath fenced up my way that I cannot pass. He hath set darkness in my paths. He hath stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He hath destroyed me on every side, and I am gone. And mine hope that he hath removed like a tree. He hath also kindled his wrath against me, and he counted me as one of his enemies. His troops come together, and they raise up their way against me, and encamp round about my tabernacle. He hath put my brethren far from me, and my acquaintances are verily estranged from me. Job is in a situation that none of us would want to be. He suffered a series of attacks by Satan allowed by the Lord God, and these attacks were absolutely so serious that he lost everything. He lost his kids, his community, his servants. He lost his status. He lost his health. And there he is now suffering. And three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, come to comfort him. And as the friends are comforting him, starting from chapter 4 all the way through a partial portion of the book that we'll see in the early parts of chapter 30, the friends say blunt things to him. They tell him what's wrong with him. They say it's all your fault and that it would all go away if you would just repent of your sin. And Job throughout this section is debating them and saying, I've not done anything wrong. Now we come to the section where it's round number two. They have all three spoken. Eliphaz spoke a second time that we looked at last week. Now it is Bildad, the middle ones, his turn to take the next round against Job. It is what's recorded in chapter 18 if you read it through. For sake of time, let me just highlight a few things from it. You can read it, just make your notes and you can read it later. Bildad is really angry. As you read through the first few verses, it's a verbal assault. I mean, he launches. It is just, he basically says, how long will you continue to say these things in a stubborn manner? Job, you're just pig-headed in other words. You need, to, you need to think carefully as we speak to you because we know what we're talking about. You treat us by not listening to us as, we are, as if we are dumb animals, that we are cattle. But you've got to know that we, we are not these vile creatures. We are intelligent men. We have the answers for your sufferings. And then they make the comment, they say, you know, Job, you claim you have a right to be angry. If you, if you have the right to be angry, then the whole world is upside down. The stones aren't in place anymore. The world is topsy-turvy. That's the comments that Bildad is making at the beginning. And basically what Bildad does is he repeats the same argument that they have stated the previous four times. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and then Eliphaz number two. They have said very, very bluntly these comments. Look at, look at verse 5. It says, Yea, the light of the wicked shall be put out, and the spark of his fire shall not shine. They say the same things basically down verse 21. Everything all the way through chapter 18 repeats this. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is not the place of him that knoweth not God. Their, their comment is basically, and they use a lot of euphemism, the tent in the wicked person's, uh, the light in the wicked person's tent is going to be put out. He's, he's going to be treated like a hunted animal. 
that he's going to be, last week we looked at how God would grab him by the neck like an animal does another one and shakes him to death. He talks about that same type of thing. He says, you know, the robbers, they, the robbers can, they, 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 will, they will rob from the wicked. Surely they're going to lose everything. Oh, by the way, is there an innuendo in that one? Because what happened to a lot of Job's property? The thieves came and stole them, the raiders. And so then they go on and they say, you're the life of the wicked, and you can look at it, they're going to be one of just fears and trepidation, and they're going to experience hunger and destruction. And the bulk of the passage, if you read the whole of the entirety of the chapter, chapter 18, the second half of it is all about, you need to repent. You need to repent because judgment is coming. You're going to lose something. You're going to lose something. You're going to lose something more. And Job, you're just, Job, you're wretched. You're just, you're miserable because you don't listen to us. That's the comfort that his friends gave him. You know, when the man is down and out, they're grinding their heel right into the back of his neck. And these are just a real delight to Job. You know, so Job's going to start speaking. Okay? And, but understand, I need, I need to refresh this and repeat this. There is a basic theology, and tonight I'm going to refer to this a little bit more and develop some of the thoughts that are very important when Job speaks to challenge this. Bildad and his friends basically believe this. People always get what they deserve in this life. They always do. They always get what they deserve. The good always experience good. Riches, comfort, peace. Always. Good people always experience good stuff. That's news to you? Okay. They believe this. The wicked always experience hardships. The wicked always suffer in this life. The wicked don't have any lengthy joy. They don't have any lengthy prosperity. They don't have kids and grandkids that grow up in security and safety. Wicked always suffer tragically, quickly in this life. They never saw Washington, D.C., did they? (laughs) Then the conclusion is, Job, since you are suffering so much, you must be a very wicked person. You must be extremely wicked. That's their theology. That's where they're coming from. And then that's why I said, you know, he's basically, they're saying to him time and again, you need to repent or it's going to get worse. Okay. Now, before we go any further, let's think this through. Why? Why would anybody say that? Why would those guys say that the wicked always suffer, the good people who do good always they prosper. Why would anybody say that? Well, that was a very common view of that age. Very common. Very common. Very popular. When you go to the New Testament, that's exactly what the apostles thought. They said to the man who was laying by the gate, that illustration we've referred to many times, well, who sinned that this man is born blind? Did he sin or did his, his parents? The thought was, if something's, you know, if there's an illness in your family, somebody's done something wrong. And so that, that popular view of those days, I don't think it's that unpopular today. I think there's a lot of people that believe this today. If I do good, only good will happen into my life. In fact, aren't there churches that preach this? If you do good, you will be rich. You will prosper. You will have houses and boats and vacations galore And probably the good that you should do is give us your... Yeah, okay. So, uh, by the way, is there some truth in this? 
Is there a little truth that the wicked will suffer and the good will prosper? There is some truth to that, is there not? Okay, there is some. There, the righteous will be blessed. That is a truism. Okay, the wicked will be punished. That's a truism. The big question is, when? That's it. Yeah, when is it going to happen? These guys are saying it happens in this lifetime. We know for sure it happens you know, after the lifetime, in eternity. We know that that is a fact. But what about this lifetime? Okay, you think about this. This is the thought that Satan promoted at the beginning of the book. Satan said the only reason Job is serving you is because you are blessing him with prosperity. Take away his prosperity and he won't follow you. This is Job's view of mankind. Uh, this is Satan's view of mankind. This is what Satan believes draws you to worship. Is you are here for one reason this morning. To get something from God. To have your bills taken care of. To have good health. To have a great retirement. To get A's in school. To get, you know, be able to play whatever sports you want. That's why Satan thinks you're here. Now the question is, is he right? Okay. For the vast majority of you, and I hope all of you, you'd say, absolutely not. That's not why I'm here. I'm not here to get from God. I'm here to give God worship. But this is the thought, okay? And by the way, these three men who are saying this, the re- one of the reasons that they have to believe this is if they don't believe this, what does it do to them? Are they susceptible to having raiders come and take their stuff? Could they lose their kids? Could they get sick? And you and I know the answer is yes. But they don't want to think that. And so the way that they handle it is denial. We deny that, those, that, that, that it could happen to us. We'll, we'll just pretend by having a new theology that makes us feel safe and secure. The new theology is we always get what we deserve. We're good, therefore we're going to get good. You who have bad stuff happen, it's because you're bad. And so in their pride and their esteem, this is what they're saying. saying. Job has to respond. Job is going to, going to respond, and we read part of it already. Job immediately in chapter 19, he speaks up and he expresses his disappointment in, the, in what Bildad has said. Oh, by the way, in the Hebrew, you vex my soul, and break, it's plural. So when he responds, he's responding to all three. You guys are crushing my soul. He makes a comment. You keep on saying the same things over and over. We would say today, you've said it a thousand times, or you've said it a million times. Job had a different number. You've said it how many times do you read in that verse? You said it ten times. To him, that's a huge number. He, he goes on. He says, you make yourselves strangers to me. As if you don't understand anything. And we don't, we're talking a different language when we talk God. He makes comment. He says, you're magnifying yourself above me. And then he makes that comment in verse 4. Basically, you're preaching to the wrong man. I haven't sinned. And by the way, if I had sinned, it's between me and God. And it's none of your business. Go for it, Job. Yeah. Job, you're right. So Job says that. And then Job, with the passage that I continued reading a moment ago, Job makes another statement to him. He says, hey, listen, 
I am having a lot of difficulties. I am suffering a lot of the stuff you just said, Bill, Dad. I've had the robbers, and I've got the hunger, and I've got no light in my tent, and there isn't security for my kids. That's all happened to me. He says, that, that's the reality. But it's not because I've done something wrong. God is doing this. God has made me an enemy, so to speak. That's the way I feel at this moment. And I don't know why. I don't understand why God is doing this, but this much I know. It has caused me some deep agony, some deep pain. I'm really suffering. And what is really, really interesting, this is a total side note, but really interesting is take Job, his comments in chapter 19, and Bildad's comments in chapter 18 and make a comparison. Bildad says, he says, by the way, here's what you're going to lose in life if you're wicked. And he lists everything that he thinks is really important in life that you could lose if you're a wicked person. Job is going to list the things that he lost. And it is amazing the difference between the two lists. Because what do these men value is shown by what they say is a big loss. Here, let me show you what Bildad does. Bildad basically says, if you're wicked, you're going to lose your physical strength, your appearance, your attributes, your good looks. He makes comment, you're going to lose your fortune. You're not going to have this name. You're not going to have these things anymore. And he says, you're going to lose fame. They're going to forget about you. They won't basically have streets named after you. This is what's important in life. And if you're wicked, you're giving it up. You're giving up the physical features, the fame, the fortune. Job responds. And when Job says, here's what really agonizes my heart. He doesn't talk all ab- at all about riches. He doesn't mention fame at all. But what he mentions is this. The thing that really hurts me the most is what I think is lost fellowship with God. Look at the verses. He talks about it and he says, I I feel as if God's not answering me. When I call, he doesn't hear me. That agonizes, that pains me. I lose direction. I'm not sure exactly where to go, what to do. And I don't have a sense of confidence. Where is God leading me? He says, I I want God's blessings upon my life. We read this verse a few moments ago in verse 9 where he talks about, you know, that, that, you know, there's, there's things not happening. He stripped me of my crown, my rewards that he has given. He says, you know, I've lost some hope. He's, he's listing all these things that really, really are important to him, like God's fellowship and God's friendship. And right after he mentions that, he has a whole litany of, and here's the other thing that really I feel like I've lost, my family, my friends, my servants. I've lost relationships with people. And for Job, what's really important in life is his fellowship with God and with other people. For what's really important for Bildad is fame and fortune and physical features. What a discrepancy between these people. And I have to ask myself and you this question. Which one of these two has the same value system that you have? Or refer, reverse that. Which one resonates with you? Uh, I, I, I just, you know, I fear losing wealth, fame, fortune. I fear more than anything else losing God's blessing, God's fellowship, God's, God's direction. I fear losing family and friends. A, 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 tre- a tremendous dichotomy between what is valuable and what is priority in these men's lives. No wonder God says about Job, he was an upright and righteous man. Anyway, Job goes on. 
And here is the crux of the message. This is the Jesus portion that is absolutely phenomenal. Job speaks about how he is feeling the loss of all these things. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, he shows his faith. I hurt, I pain, I don't understand. It is just, you know, I feel like I'm hauling stones back and forth. I feel like my, my, my life is now being flooded and taken over by a dam. But I do have a hope. And my hope is this. My hope is Jesus is basically what he's going to say. Watch where he goes in verse 23. Oh, that my words were now written. His, his comment is, is, is just an amazing comment. He says, oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. Though my reins be consumed within me. This is his magnum opus, which is a term that's used for your greatest literary, your greatest poetry, the greatest you know, display of artistic sports skill that you could have, what, your greatest song piece. This is like you know, that, that composer that we, we often think of what he did. How Handel had grown up in that area of Britain and worked in Germany and throughout Europe but all of a sudden, when he was in his you know, 40s, going into his 50s, he suffered a stroke. He could no longer use four of his fingers. His, his greatest contribution at that time was not just in writing music, but also playing the organ was his, his excellency, his masterpiece. And all of a sudden, now he's unable to even use his hand. Well, during that time, he recovers a little bit. But then what happens is he's approached by a friend, and the friend says, hey, I've got this poetry that is basically a series of Bible verses that talk about Jesus. And I was wondering if you would write some music that would, that would go with this score. And I will even pay for you to do this. I will be your, your uh, investor, you know, your underwriter. So a few months later, he begins writing the score for this music. It is considered one of the masterpieces of all times, and one of the reasons is because how quickly he does it. What he does is in a matter of just a few days, he writes part one. In a matter of a few more days, he writes the second part. In a matter of a few more days, he writes the third part. And one of the friends who visited him said he was pushing himself to just all lengths of the day. And oftentimes when I stopped by, he would be crying and weeping as he'd be writing the music because he was so overwhelmed by what he was doing. Not overwhelmed physically, but just by the spirit and the content of the material that he was putting together. Uh, one, of the, one, of the, you know, one of the most unusual situations, prolific in writing, that he wrote so many pages of full orchestration within this short period of time. It's just, it's considered one of the greatest masterpieces for one reason is the complexity and the content of the music in such a short space of time. His magnum opus that he said afterwards, he felt like the Apostle Paul, not knowing whether he was in the flesh or out of the flesh. That it was just, it was, he was sustained by the Lord. Some would claim that that was a spiritual revelation, but that doesn't fit scripture. By the way, you know what this song is. Right? Yeah. Yeah. 
And then afterwards, this man's fame, after all he had suffered with the stroke and everything, afterwards he got involved with leading it multiple times. One of those texts in that song comes from this verse that we just read. They come from Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19 is, is, I don't know how else to say it. It is Job's magnum opus. His most poetic reference to Jesus Christ. If you look at what we just read at the beginning of the passage, he says, what I'm going to say right now should be written down. Oh, by the way, that just took care of all those critics of Job that said, we can't trust this book because there wasn't writing in the human race at that time. Uh, I beg your pardon? Job even talks about writing it down and writing it down in rock and in lead. You know, so they were well, that, that, that society was an intelligent society. They weren't men walking around with sticks, hitting ladies on the head and dragging them to a cave. Yeah. This was a highly intelligent person that said, we need to write this down. This is so important what I'm going to say. And in fact, he says, at this point, he says, I am so excited and enthused about these thoughts that he says, I moved to the point of physical exhaustion. Literally, my kidneys are failing. Now, we would think that a totally different context. But he's talking from the Semitic mind that they thought that their mind and their emotions were centered not in their heart or their head, but in their bowels, and especially in their kidney. And so he says, my, my, I, I am just, I, th- what, what I think about when I say this, this causes me such exuberance and so much excitement and then it, that it should be written down, and it's all this that we just read a few moments ago. It starts with that idea, I know something. I know in the middle of my trials, I, I know in the middle of you guys beating me up and crushing me and giving me a hard time, this much I know. And then he just talks. He says in these verses, I know this. I have an absolute certainty of this. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know if I'll be here anymore. I feel like I'm going to die at any moment. I don't know what God is doing. I don't know know, what's going to happen to my wife and I. I don't know. But this much I know. I know my Redeemer lives. And when he says this, there's emphatic words that he uses. In the the Hebrew, the way they're positioned and the way they repeat sometimes. One of the emphatic words is my... I know my Redeemer, not my mom's Redeemer, not my dad's Redeemer, not my, my cousin's, not our, you know, this group setting that there's the three, four, or five of us that are sitting there. Uh, and not that, not that this is something that we as a, as a nation know. He says, I know my, my personal. This is me. I know my Redeemer, my Goel. It's the same word that shows up in the Hebrew multiple times in the Old Testament. Shows up some 44 times throughout the Old Testament. It's the idea of somebody who delivers. It's the idea of somebody who lays claim to something because they're related. There's a, there's a tie. Okay? There's, it's the idea of somebody. Somebody who is able to get involved and say that you have a need. You, you're related to me. And I'm going to help you out. I have the ability to do this. I can, I can rescue you from a special need. And, and, and the word shows up it, when we go further into the Old Testament. And I understand part of it's under the law that's, that's given. But there's this concept that shows up pre-law and in the law. And it's all about this Redeemer. And this Redeemer, excuse me, this Goel, this kinsman Redeemer, he is a person who could recover your property if you lost your possessions. He's an individual who could defend you in court. If you were taken to court and you needed somebody, you're Goel. He's the guy that would come to your rescue in court. 
Uh, in the Old Testament, it's the guy who could buy you out of slavery. If you were indebted because of your family bills and you were taken and put into debtor's prison, your relative could come and have the means and the wherewithal to redeem you from that debtor's prison, that slavery. That's your goel. It's the referring to somebody who would, who would even defend a slain relative. If they came in and raided the, the area and took away all your goods, one of your relatives, your Goel, who had the ability and the interest could come in and he could get revenge and bring back all your items for the rest of your family to have. That's Goel. Goel is one that's even referred to that if in your family because the idea in the Old Testament was to have somebody who would be your heir. That was very important. You die, gentlemen, without an heir. One of your relatives, could be your brother, could be somebody else, could marry your wife and the first child you would have, that child would be the heir to your deceased brother and carry on the family name. That's Goel. Goel is the idea that terms that show up in the Bible, that in the Old Testament, these are some of the different titles and the way that it's interpreted. A rescuer, defender, provider, restorer. That's Goel. And Job is saying in this comment, he, know, he says, I know right now my, my, my Goel, my rescuer, all this stuff's going on in my life, my rescuer, he is alive. Right now, he's alive and well. Job is absolutely certain there is somebody going to defend him. There is somebody going to rescue him. There is somebody that's going to be on his side even though nobody's on his side. His slaves are gone. The community is gone. The people who used to rely upon him, they're gone. His friends who are sitting with him, they aren't even defending him. They're attacking him. He is in a deserted, lonely moment, and he says, but this much I know. I know there is somebody who's alive, my Goel, and he is on my side. Nobody else is, but Goel is. And he goes on, he makes a comment. He shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. That idea is a prophecy. A prophecy that Job doesn't even know he's talking about. But he's saying, when he says he shall stand, it's the idea of somebody who is conquered. Somebody who is standing victorious. Somebody who is going to rule and be in charge. And here he is, he's saying, my Goel, the one that I know, who's going to redeem me, is also going to be in charge of the earth. One day he's going to rule. One day he's going to be in charge. One day he's going to defeat all of this garbage that takes place in our world. He goes a little bit further. He says this, and he says, And after my skin is destroyed, stripped from my body. You'll notice in the King James that the worms there is an italicized. That was inserted by the authors to give us a sense of who is stripping it. Literally, it's just the idea, my skin is destroyed. My skin is stripped off. By worms, by what, by death itself, we don't know. But it's the idea, there's going to come a time when my skin is gone off these bones. In other words, I'm going to be in the grave and I'm going to rot away. Isn't that cheery news? But it's a reality. And he says, my skin, yet in my flesh, yet in my flesh, I myself, emphatic words in the Hebrew, I myself shall see God. And he goes on, he makes a comment, okay, that... Job is saying here, he expects to die. Job does not expect a healing to take place from this disease that he has. Job is making the comment that I, I'm not looking for rescue right now. I'm not looking over the hill for somebody in a white horse to come charging over the end and rescue me. But I expect to happen sometime in the future when Goel is in charge of the world. When Goel is ruling and reigning, I expect to come back from the dead. 
and I'm going to come back in my flesh. But my flesh is rotted. What's he referring to? What's he talking about? He's talking about a, re- a resurrection. He's talking about your body being restored from the dust. And he's saying, it's going to be me. I'm not coming back as a light bulb with a whole bunch of other light bulbs. I'm coming back as Job. And I'm going to be Job. And with my very own eyes that have, excuse me for being so graphic, they have rotted away, they've turned to dust. One day they're going to be put back in my head. My head's going to be all, and I'm going to be like I am now. And then I'm going to see Goel. I'm going to see God. And that's going to happen to me. And he goes on and he makes that comment. He is so certain. Watch what he does. Whom God I shall see for myself and my own eye shall behold and not another. He's not saying this is exclusively for me and me and me alone. That's not what it means. But what he is saying here, I personally will see God face to face. What he is saying is this isn't something for others and I'm left out. I'm going to be there. Will there be others? Yeah. But I'm going to be there, Job says. I'm going to be with God. I'm going to see God. And he says, when that happens, we're not going to be strangers anymore. I'm not going to feel like, God, are you my enemy? God, did you send your troops against me? It's going to be like we are, and without being irreverent, we are bosom buddies. And we are going to be close. And I'm going to be with him. This is an amazing thought. Job said, the thing that I, that I really, really, really feel that is the first and foremost pain and agony that I feel that I have lost is my fellowship with God, being, not being close to him. And I long for fellowship. And I long for the day to see God, he says. And I know it's going to happen. It's going to happen for sure after the resurrection. Could it happen in this lifetime? He didn't know. But it's going to happen after the resurrection. And I know it's made possible by Goel by the Redeemer, my Redeemer. And by the way, I know that that Redeemer is alive right now. He's alive at the time that Job is writing this. In fact, he has already talked about him. If I understand Job right, that's the one that he talked about last week, the witness who sees everything in heaven, the one who is an intercessor before God Almighty. And he says, I know that that Goel will one day rule the world. He'll take charge. He'll be in total control of the entire world. And so Job says, I have a relationship with that God is it and so here we are this is my belief this is what I am conclusions what's this mean theologically it means these thoughts there had to be more revelation than we have recorded at this time there had to be God had to be telling Job and other people stuff that didn't get recorded in the early scriptures that's no no you know challenge to you and me that's no problem they knew about sacrifices even though they're never mentioned did we just lose everything here? Bless you. Okay. Okay. So what happens is he says there's more revelation than what took that than we have recorded. Let me show you something else. The Goel is Jesus Christ. Okay? We've already referred to him. That tells me this that a lot of revelation in previous history focused on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ isn't a modern character of Scripture. He is the character throughout Scripture. Okay? That he is the primary one. It means to me Jesus was alive before he was birthed. You and I weren't. We weren't some angel baby in heaven waiting to be plopped into a body. Okay? But Jesus was alive. Because Jesus is eternal. It tells me this. 
that Job's personal savior was Jesus. He didn't call him Jesus, but he called him Goel, witness. He didn't have that proper name that you and I know that proper name by. But Job is saying that the way I can handle trials, the way that I can handle desertion, the way that I can handle all the difficulties is by thinking I have somebody on my side. It's Goel, redeemer, rescuer, deliverer. Though everybody forsakes me, he will never forsake me. Though everybody is putting me down, he is not putting me down. He is defending me in heaven. And so he makes these comments. And then he's basically saying in all of this, and he said, the way I'm going to get through this trial, the way I'm going to get through this disease, the way I'm getting through ten funerals of my kids, the way I'm putting up with you people driving me nuts, his friends, not me to you, Okay, Job to his three friends. The way that I am handling the loss of everything in this world is I'm thinking about the next world. I am focused on what's ahead, what I am going to get from God, not what I've lost that men consider important. And that's where Job's at. That's where he, you know. So if, if I'm going to walk away from this text, it's like, okay, what do we do with this? What do we do with it? We know this much. In this life, you and I can be sure of our eternal destiny. Job could be absolutely sure he's going to be in heaven one day. He's going to be with God one day. You and I can have that same absolute assurance. Because the Bible, when it was completed, the conclusion in one of the last books was, these things have been written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I grew up being told nobody can know. I grew up in a church that said, you have a hope so, you have a maybe, and the only hope of a maybe is you follow our church, and then even then it's questionable. Well, my Bible says I can know. Not because of this church, not because of my family, not because of me, but because of Jesus Christ and what Christ has done, I can know I'm on my way to heaven. And I'm not special. Other than Jesus loved me and died for me and saved me when I prayed and repented of my sin. And that can be for anyone in this room or listening to this now or later on. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Because of Goel, not because of us. Not because of my calling or my understanding or, or, or my, my contributions. It's because of Jesus who has died on the cross and risen again to give us eternal life. He's the Savior. He's the Rescuer. He is the way. Praise God we have a Goel. Doesn't that take you right back to the song? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. So the assurance is very simple. You can have it by having a, a Job experience. Have a my redeemer experience. You repent of your sin and ask Jesus Christ to become your personal Goel. That's the beauty of the text. If there's a lesson for you who are sitting here who do not know you're on your way to heaven, you have a doubt, then this is the simple thing you carry with you this week. Be sure. Be sure. Be sure. Now, there's another thought. That in this life... You can face anything that comes your way this week. You can face it. How do you face it? Job says, I'm facing it because I'm looking beyond this life. 
I'm looking on to the life that really is eternal. I'm looking at, as he would say, I'm looking at beyond this life. For us, we would put it in terms, we're looking into heaven. We're looking at the blessings that will come in the future. The blessings that some of our relatives are enjoying right now. The blessings that we will be enjoying, and this is a pretty much a, an absolute certainty. The blessings in 100 years from now, those of us who are sure of our, our destiny, we're going to be enjoying these things. For some of us, it could be this week. For some years. For some, it could be, you know, in two, three years. But the reality is this. This is what we have to look forward to. And it's a whole lot better than what we got right here. And anything that we have right here, even though we put our stock in it, it's not lasting. This lasts. This is what we have to look forward to. We don't have to look for... We're going to look for at a place that has no more night. We're going to be in a place where there's no more sin. No temptation. No bills. No sickness. No doctors. No preachers. Okay. No time. We're not going to worry about getting out of here real quick. This is worth it. And anything that we do between here and there, it pales. And that's where Job's at. Job's buried ten kids. And he says, but what keeps me going is I look, I look at what I've got ahead. Job has lost everything. Has no certainty of tomorrow. But this is what I have to look forward to in heaven. Job has, Job's got health problems like nobody in this room has. But this is what he, this what keeps me going. I know that my Redeemer lives, and I shall see him. There's a story told about a missionary who'd spent 40 years in Africa. 1800s, early 1900s, they spent 40 years. They never took a break. They come back to the States from the field of working in Africa where it was, it was hard. Life was threatened. There was hunger. There was pain. There was, a, there was disease comes back to the States, and when they were traveling by boat to get back to the States, they were so exhausted that basically stayed in their room. And they, they rowed the voyage out, had very little contact with others on the boat. But when they got to, coming into New York Harbor, there they are standing like others on the edge of the boat and looking, and there's crowds. And there's signs, welcome home. Welcome home. Some even had some type of balloons. And he looked at his wife and he said, I thought nobody would remember us. I thought nobody, even in the Christian realm, that they had forgotten about us, and they're here. They're here to welcome us home. I thought they had forgotten. And he was so excited, so encouraged, that they went down to the state, their room, and they got their stuff together, and they came back up on deck, ready to board, and they were blocked. They were told they have to wait. Wait until the most prominent dignitary of, on the board got off the boat. He thought it was about him. Instead, they found out that Teddy Roosevelt had just been in Africa on one of his hunting expeditions. And here he was coming back, and nobody had known on the boat. They kept it a secret he was on the boat. 
But somehow somebody leaked it to the press that he was arriving and here all these people were welcoming back Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt goes down the gang plight and Morrison is standing there shaking his head. We spent 40 years, 40 years trying to rescue the souls of men in Africa. 40 years of trying to labor to see individuals hear of Jesus Christ. That man goes for a few weeks to shoot some elephants. And the crowds come cheering and welcoming him home. And what about us? His wife said the most profound message he could have heard. She said, honey, you have to remember, we're still not home. We're not home yet. We're not home. You know what? If you're going to walk away this week and have one thought in your mind, let me encourage you to be this. Let me encourage you that this week, here's what you do. Think heaven. Think heaven. Yeah, while, while the food is burning, you know, take care of it. Okay. But think heaven. When the bills come, pay them. Okay, don't just say, I'll, I'll let it. <laughs> pay your bills. Yeah, put gas in the car. Okay, don't be so heavenly minded to put gas in the car and leave somebody else to be stranded. But think heaven. That song that, it's no longer in our hymn book. But it's a song that some of you know. It's a song about one day when we get to heaven. It's going to be worth it all. Do you remember the tune? If not, you're hearing it. (laughs) It's all about just, life is hard. Life is difficult. But it's going to be worth it all when we see Christ. We're going to sing this song as our closing this morning just to encourage one another. But as we sing, if you aren't sure of your eternal destiny, our staff's going over by those doors right there. They're going to be waiting for you. If you would like to be sure, know for sure you're on your way to heaven, then get up and go and talk with one of those men or ladies. They'll take you down the hall, private rooms. They'll show you from the Bible what you need to do according to the Bible to be sure you're going to heaven. You can do that while we sing and encourage about what it's going to be like when we see Christ.